Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Greetings, MUD listeners. Thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to catch up on some of the latest articles for modern optometry. This episode will touch on contact lenses, thyroid eye disease, and patient management. Because we have three articles to cover here, let's get right into it. We'll start off hearing from Roxanne Cohen, optometrist and owner of Cohen Eye Care and Optical Boutique in Acohe, Florida. If you want to start fitting medically necessary contact lenses, or just get better at it, you'll want to pay close attention here. There's a lot to consider before choosing to offer this service, but Dr. Cohen has some helpful pearls to share. Adding medically necessary contact lenses to your practice is a rewarding decision, but one that requires careful planning, dedication, and hard work. Before even considering starting this journey, you must already be passionate about this subspecialty, otherwise it will not be a success. So what exactly is a medically necessary contact lens? There is no universal definition, but the category includes soft, spherical, and toric lenses, as well as hybrid, rigid gas permeable, and scleral lenses. These lenses are typically used to provide a quality of vision that is better than the patient's experience with glasses or to treat some type of ocular surface disease. Every insurance company has its own criteria for coverage of medically necessary contact lenses. It is important to download the manual for each type of health insurance that you accept or plan to accept and have this information readily accessible. Before you dive in, be sure to educate yourself on all available contact lens modalities. That is soft, rigid gas permeable, hybrid, and scleral rather than building your expertise in only one modality. This way, you can give patients the best recommendations based on your diagnosis and financial situation. Completing a contact lens residency can give you the opportunity to work and network with educators, students, and researchers in the contact lens space. It'll also expose you to many different specialty lens patient cases including some difficult cases in a short span of time because of the availability of contact lens diagnostic sets and the technology that is used to aid in lens fitting. If you are unable to undertake a residency, you can still select a site to practice with an experienced doctor who is willing to mentor you in specialty contact lenses. National meetings, such as the American Academy of Optometry, the American Optometric Association, the Global Specialty Lens Symposium, and Vision by Design from the American Academy of Orthokeratology and Myopia Control are excellent places to learn about specialty lenses. Online education and resources are also available via the Gas Permeable Lens Institute, Wu University, and the Scleral Lens Education Society, to name a few options. Once you have achieved many successful lens fittings, you can then share your cases by writing articles for professional publications. This way, you can become the mentor and give local talks to raise awareness of your services and 
As you gain experience, you can even participate in continuing education meetings. This can be a great practice builder because many individuals who are researching their ocular conditions may read some of these published articles and seek you out as their eye care provider as a result. Staff education is another critical component to mastering medically necessary contact lenses. From the call center, to the technicians, to the opticians, to the billing department, employees, every team member must be able to identify potential patients who may benefit from these lenses and schedule the appropriate length of time needed for the appointment. Past medical records will help you to efficiently fit contact lenses as there will be a history of what has and not been successful. Regular weekly or monthly meetings are an opportunity to teach staff about the differences between lenses, the data required from instrumentation to achieve a successful fit, the disinfection solutions needed to clean the lenses, the techniques for insertion and removal of different lenses, the saline solutions required to fill the bowl of the lenses before insertion, and the artificial tears that are approved for the use with the different contact lenses. The technology used to aid in contact lens fittings is expensive, but worth the investment. Such technology is used to diagnose ocular disease, evaluate its severity, and check for the progression. For example, pachymetry measures the thickness of the cornea and should be performed in patients who have progressive corneal diseases such as keratoconus and corneal degenerations. Corneal topography is used to evaluate the shape and the height of the cornea, while scleral topography is used to evaluate the shape of the surrounding conjunctiva close to the limbal area. Anterior segment OCT measures the apical clearance of the lens and displays the landing of the lens onto the conjunctiva. Specular microscopy can be performed to measure cell count in patients who have corneal transplants and those with Fuchs dystrophy. Selecting one or two labs to work with and speaking with contact lens lab consultants who are familiar with the different lens designs that the manufacturer uses will help you acquire knowledge about these specific lens designs. When choosing a lens manufacturer, it is critical that you consider the questions below. What is the cost of the lens? How many lens exchanges are allowed at no charge? And what is the cost of additional lenses if there are no more exchanges left? What is the time frame for achieving a successful fit before there are any additional charges? What are the shipping charges to the practice? Does the lens for a new order include a starter kit and accessories, such as a tool for lens insertion and removal, mirrors, or a sample saline to fill the bowl of the lens before insertion? How long does it take for the lens to be manufactured and shipped to the practice? What are the warranty policies for broken lenses and non-wedding lenses? What is the cost of a loaner fit set? And what is the time frame on the loaner set? Do lenses that do not work need to be returned to the manufacturer? Once your practice begins to offer medically necessary contact lenses, it would behoove you to establish a budget to increase awareness in the community about this new service. There are two types of marketing, external and internal, and you may choose to employ elements of each. This type of marketing includes blogs on the website, email, text messages, newsletters, reviews, and on-hold messages. Referrals from medically necessary lenses can be obtained from teachers, 
ophthalmologists, optometrists, and other healthcare providers. Follow-up letters should be sent to anyone who provides a referral to update them on the patient's medical history. These letters will help to build trust with your referees as you continue to successfully fit these patients with medically necessary contact lenses, ultimately spreading awareness of your services. When a patient decides to try medically necessary contact lenses, any costs associated with treatment, lens care products, and the lenses themselves should be calculated and thoroughly explained to them. Have the patient sign a contract, which should include the following details. The patient's medical condition and prognosis, the insurance coverage for medical and vision, and the copay amount. How to handle extra tests during the examination that are not covered by insurance. The out-of-pocket expenses example patients who have to purchase supplies for the lenses at the dispense or replacement materials if a starter kit is provided. The cost of the disinfection systems and solutions needed to wear and maintain the lenses. The explanation of warranty policy if the lens become lost or broken. And the importance of keeping scheduled appointments to complete the fit. And what cancellation fees if applicable. Choosing to offer a medically necessary contact lens service requires education, organization, and preparation, as it is a considerable financial investment. However, in my opinion, it is the most rewarding feeling to help patients for whom wearing these lenses is the only way for them to function normally. In fact, patients fit with medically necessary lenses are often very appreciative and many become lifelong, loyal patients who in turn refer other patients to your practice in the future. Feeling more confident about fitting medically necessary contact lenses? Remember, familiarize yourself with all contact lens modalities and every insurance company has its own criteria for coverage. Next, important to the differential diagnosis of dry eye disease is a familiarity with thyroid eye disease. How capable are you at managing this autoimmune condition? Jason Schmidt, an optometrist at Advanced Thompson Vision in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, offers a quick rundown on its diagnosis, underlying pathology, and management. Dry eye disease, or DED, is a chronic, progressive, and multifactorial disease, and it affects more than 16 million people in the United States alone. Dry disease is typically broken into two categories based on its root cause, aqueous deficiency or meibomian gland dysfunction. Management is guided by a patient's signs and symptoms. Important to the differential diagnosis is a familiarity with thyroid eye disease, or TED. Patients with TED often present to an optometrist's office with clinical findings similar to dry eye disease, but conventional dry eye disease therapies are ineffective. Your ability to recognize TED can help you to provide appropriate care. TED differs from Graves' disease. The latter is an autoimmune condition that produces hypothyroidism and has an incidence rate of 0.02 to 0.05%. Approximately 40% of patients with Graves' disease experience progression to TED, and the severity of their symptoms ranges from mild to moderate. TED is an autoimmune condition that affects the soft tissues around the eye, and its incident rate is 0.016% for women and 0.003% for men. The terms 
Graves' orbitopathy and Graves' eye disease are synonymous with TED. It's important to note that the condition can affect individuals with just hyperthyroidism and or Hashimoto's disease. When patients with TED first present to your office, they may exhibit with generalized dry eye symptoms of red, watery, burning eyes that are unresponsive to conventional dry eye disease management. Using your subsequent investigation, attempt to correlate patients' systemic medical health with their ocular presentation. Look for signs of eyelid retraction, leg ophthalmos, proptosis, transient diplopia, extraocular dysmotility, positive corneal exposure, and optic nerve involvement. There are two distinct phases of TED, the active or active phase and the chronic or inactive phase. The acute phase occurs suddenly and can last up to three years. In the chronic phase, symptoms may improve, but the appearance of proptosis can remain. Grading TED involves using a clinical activity score. The table provides a means of identifying patients with TED who may benefit from immunosuppressive therapy. The process is similar to grading DED or dry eye disease severity using the score of the speed uh, questionnaire that you're familiar with, standardized patient evaluation of eye dryness. The nose specs classification provides a severity score but does not determine the clinical activity or provide a guide for management. Diagnosing TED should include ordering a general physical and blood work, which includes labs like T3, T4, and thyroid stimulating hormone receptor, and possibly an orbital CT. In TED, orbital fibroblasts are activated, leading to the expansion of soft tissue, fat, and muscle around the eye. This can cause proptosis, diplopia, pain, redness, tearing, and decreased vision. Overexpression of an incident-like growth factor 1 receptor, so IGF-1 receptor, and the interaction of thyroid-stimulating hormone receptor occur, and a complex forms on the orbital fibroblast. Autoantibodies to the IGF-1 receptor then bind to the complex, leading to the activation of the fibroblast and the release of the pro-inflammatory cytokines like interleukin and tumor necrosis factor. The latter can result in tissue expansion and edema. Managing TED can include treating the patient's secondary dry eye symptoms, but the key is to address the root cause of the orbital soft tissue inflammation. Tapeza is a monoclonal immunoglobulin that binds and blocks the signal transduction of the IGF-1 receptor and the TSHR receptor complex on the orbital fibroblast to reduce orbital inflammation. Intravenous infusions are administered by medical professionals over the course of five months, one dose delivered every three weeks for a total of eight infusions. Each is administered and is typically 60 to 90 minutes in duration and performed at an infusion clinic. Because Tapeza can mimic insulin receptors, 90% of human insulin receptors are half insulin and half IGF-1 receptors, the side effects of treatment can include hyperglycemia. Fasting blood glucose and A1C tests are recommended before treatment begins, and the patient's blood sugar level should be measured at each infusion with a finger stick test. Other side effects to monitor for include exacerbation of the pre-existing inflammatory bowel disease, 
muscle spasms, nausea, alopecia, diarrhea, fatigue, hearing impairment, dyskusia, headache, and dry skin. Managing TED involves multiple disciplines. Work closely with your local ophthalmologist, primary care physician, endocrinologist, oculoplastic surgeon, and or rheumatologist when treating patients with Tapeza. I typically see patients halfway through the series at two to three months out and monitor them for improvement and side effects. Be sure to educate patients with TED on the disease itself and remind them to avoid smoking and practice a healthy lifestyle. The addition of selenium and vitamin D supplements and Brazil nuts to a patient's diet can help to control thyroid dysfunction. A patient I recently saw was a 71-year-old white female with Graves' disease presented to the clinic for a dry eye examination. She had previously undergone orbital decompression surgery in 2013, but was referred to the clinic for burning, tearing, orbital pain, and double vision. Her diplopia was being managed with prism in her eyeglasses. The patient had optic atrophy in the right eye, and she reported only using artificial tears daily and gels or ointments at night. The patient's clinical activity score was a 3 based on scoring one point each for gaze-evoked orbital pain, eyelid swelling, and eyelid urethema. Dry testing revealed normal osmolarity, 287 in the right eye, 294 in the left, but elevated MMP9s and a normal Schirmer's, 18 millimeters and 20 millimeters, respectively, and normal mybography. We started the patient on Tapeza, and a few weeks after first two doses, she reported improvement in pain, double vision, and lid edema. Optometrists are the first providers involved in diagnosing TED. If a patient with dry eye disease is not responding to conventional therapy, look for the signs and symptoms of TED. Work closely with your physician colleagues to order imaging and blood tests and consider offering Tapeza to address the root cause of orbital inflammation. Because optometrists are typically the first healthcare providers to diagnose thyroid eye disease, it's important for them to be familiar with the condition and its management. The table Dr. Schmidt refers to as a means of identifying patients with thyroid eye disease can be found in the online version of the article at modernod.com. Okay, we've reached the last segment of the episode, but we're going to pause and take a short break before we wrap things up. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Let's ride this episode out with a piece by Patricia Fulmer, founder and owner of Legacy Vision Care in Huntsville, Alabama. You may want to take notes. Dr. Fulmer shares some helpful approaches that can prevent or tactfully navigate common misunderstandings that occur when the patient is in the wrong. We've all heard the adage, the customer is always right. But in a profession that merges medicine with retail, this philosophy can complicate things. What do we do when, in fact, the patient is wrong about a clinical or business matter? And what if they insist that they're correct and refuse to accept our explanations? There are different approaches for handling these situations, 
and they depend on the nature of the patient's misunderstanding. I'll discuss each of these approaches. Let's look at the clinical side first. When a patient is wrong about a clinical matter, it is often because they have diagnosed themselves before even coming to you, or they do not understand the diagnosis, treatment, or severity of the condition you've discussed with them. There are many ways to deal with such misunderstandings. Often, problems with miscommunication can be resolved or prevented altogether with appropriate education. It's imperative that clinicians take the time to educate their patients on examination findings and diagnosis, which in turn leads to better communication and higher compliance rates. Diagnostic tools such as retinal photography, OCT, and visual field testing can be used to enhance a patient's understanding of their condition. By using these tools and providing a clear explanation of the results, you can help change a patient's mind when they present with an incorrect self-diagnosis. In addition, the importance of proper treatment may resonate more soundly when they're able to see the examination findings firsthand. When you discern that a patient may not be on the same page about a diagnosis or treatment plan, one or more follow-up visits can prove prudent. These visits can be in person, allowing additional testing to be performed. In-person visits also give patients another face-to-face -face opportunity to hear your education efforts and see the testing data for themselves. Alternatively, telemedicine or a simple follow-up phone call can be sufficient in some cases. Regardless of the type of follow-up visit, subsequent encounters often resolve any false perceptions that may be confusing the patient. In rare instances, when a patient refuses to follow a recommended treatment plan for a site-threatening condition, Despite repeated attempts to educate them, it is best to cut ties and recommend that their care be continued elsewhere. The typical protocol is to send a certified letter to the patient explaining that care cannot be continued at your clinic and why. Your letter should also provide an alternate office or offices where the patient can seek future care. Now let's consider the business side. Examples of situations in which patients may be in the wrong regarding a business-related issue include demanding that you replace their broken personal frame despite your policy stating otherwise, or claiming that they were incorrectly charged for a product or service. I'll review three suggestions for handling these types of situations. Similar to patient education in the clinic, thorough documentation can be of utmost importance in preventing misunderstandings in business, as well as resolving them. This includes having patients sign forms such as financial agreements, return policies, and personal frame use policies, as well as keeping detailed receipts showing the products and services provided. Be sure to clearly explain any policies and charges to your patients before having them sign documentation or providing payment. Doing so will often prevent problems going forward. In addition, when a patient insists on a point that is directly against your policies, or that conflicts with their actual charges, being able to review such documentation with them can definitively show the correct information. Another option is to offer a compromise. Although the patient may be wrong, a compromise can help build bridges in cases where the patient's amenable to it. The course of action should only come after discussing applicable documentation, and it tends to work best when the patient has simply misunderstood a charge or a policy, but is not challenging its validity. Some examples of compromise include providing the patient with a small gift card to your practice to use for future visits or writing off a small clinical balance. Any type of compromise should be combined with extensive education about what will be due at future visits. 
This option should be used with discretion and reserved for patients who you can tell will appreciate it and learn from the experience. The last option is by far the least common and least popular, and for good reason. However, it is sometimes necessary. There are patients for whom no amount of documentation or reasoning will ever be enough, and cutting your losses can be much less cumbersome for you and your staff than extensive discussion. Don't be afraid to recommend that these patients seek other practices or opticals to do business with. The unfortunate reality is that some people simply cannot be pleased, and it would be frivolous to keep trying at the expense of your time and peace of mind. Conflict is never enjoyable, but it is inevitable. When you're faced with a patient who is clearly wrong, remember the discussed tactics to mitigate the situation. By incorporating these recommendations, you can dissipate most disagreements and typically keep happy patients coming back to your practice year after year. Well, what did you think of this episode? Drop us a line at K-R-O-M-A-N at bmctoday.com and let us know. If you had a favorite article, found something especially helpful, or want more of a particular topic, we want to hear from you. This brings us to the end of yet another episode. I'll meet you back here in October, if you can believe it. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about this podcast. Until next time, be well.